Hey, it's John Ingle, and I'm excited to share that registration is now live for Grid Tech Connect Forum California. Join us in Newport Beach June 24th through the 26th for the interconnection event. We're bringing together utilities, developers, regulators, and advocates to take on one of the biggest challenges facing the energy transition, both at the DG and utility scale levels. Click the link in the episode description and use promo code PODCAST to save 10% on admission. Join our partners from the Department of Energy, NREL, Southern California Edison, PG&E, Kaiso, Sunrun, NG, Convergent, AES, and so many more for this impactful event. We'll see you there. Hello and welcome to another edition of This Week in Clean Tech, a roundup of the week's biggest stories you need to know in climate and clean energy in 15 minutes or less. Today is Friday, September 22nd, 2023. I am Renewable Energy World Senior Content Director John Ingle, and we will have Evan Halper from the Washington Post joining us shortly. But I'm joined once again by a PR climate tech, clean tech veteran, Mike Casey of TigerCom. Hey, Mike. Hello, Mr. Engel. I um, I see you stayed dressed up after RE+. I never, I, I actually didn't had... change. This is... You know, I didn't want to say anything, yeah. but okay. Uh, but man, you must wear that wrinkle-proof stuff because you look great. All yeah, right. The spray the spray works wonders. Yeah, same outfit <laughs> since, uh, since last Wednesday. And my wife is really having a hard time. Um, well, it is good to see you again, and we are a bit recovered from RE+, so I think that's a good thing, and, and happy to get yeah. to all these stories. And we want all of you listening and watching to be involved as well, so remember to send over those story recommendations, and many have been very good. We used some last week, so thank you for doing yeah. that. This week in clean tech at <clears throat> tigercom.us, and we'll have that link in the episode description as well. All right, Mike, kick us off. Story number one, we we have a story written by Gris Maddie Stone titled, New Battery Recycling Rules Could Be a Game Changer in the EU's Search for EV Minerals. Mr. Engel, what were your thoughts? Yeah, interesting one. EU policymakers want to recycle dead lithium-ion batteries from EVs and other electronics to alleviate concerns around critical mineral sourcing and, and mining. So the EU now has rules to increase battery recycling, which should significantly reduce mining that's as we know, harmful to the environment. Manufacturers are now required to recycle waste batteries to make new materials with ambitious targets for metals recovery as well. Now, I I think there's a point of caution with this one, not to get too excited because experts are worrying that this might create a whole additional uh, duplicative economy around maybe we're going to prematurely recycle batteries, but it seems like a good start. What did you think, Mike? Um, I've got two thoughts on this. The first is, I think you know the EU is such a big market to itself that when they do something, they can really pull the global economy in in that direction. And I think, therefore, this has got a potential to really impact a lot of countries beyond the, the EU. But I'll say also, um, earlier this week, we taped the Clean Tech Leaders Roundtable quarterly uh, panel of investors. And there's a gentleman on uh, that panel who talked about them beginning to invest in the lithium battery recycling space. And I must admit, I didn't know that we had achieved that sort of scale of use that we have now, that scale of need. And I thought that was really interesting that there's money going into preparing to recycle all these batteries. And I think it's, it's really, it's just another sign 
of gathering momentum that we saw so many indicators of last week, John. What's story number two? Yeah, number two is written by Time Magazine's Justin Worland, titled, As Climate and Trade Become Intertwined, a Bipartisan Push for Carbon Tariffs is Emerging. What'd you take away? So uh, worth noting, again, unfortunately, the IRA was passed without a single Republican vote, but now some Republicans are getting behind um, a different type of uh, legislation. And this one would put carbon tariffs on um, on products that are made overseas. And if the EU starts this thing, I think we could really see some really uh, positive impacts. Yes, I think a lot of these roads lead back to China, particularly Western China, but decarbonizing manufacturing in scope three emissions paradigms, I think is really kind of the frontier we've got to tackle. Because if you do that and you get it right, and you have honest accounting that people can believe in, you make a lot of progress and you accelerate the progress you're already making. So it's kind of a twofer. John, what did you think? Yeah, it seems to be part of a, a broader shift we're seeing in climate and trade dynamics where we're moving away from a world with you know few trade restrictions and a small number of countries dominating clean energy supply chains toward more protectionism. IRA, the EU is going in similar directions with supply chains spread out and with more manufacturing by countries that, that can do it cleaner. So Trump's presidency uh, disrupted that more open trade dynamic, which led the EU to be the first to put a a tax on carbon pollution from products coming into its borders. Um, Biden seems to be less protectionist, but did keep some of Trump's tariffs in place. So it'll be important to see how these trade dynamics and the politics around them affect the clean energy transition in the years to come. Mike, what's our third one? You know, I'm going to add. Yeah, go ahead. I'm going to, I'll introduce that, but I'll put in a different point. I think this also, um, it undercuts one of the arguments that's often made um, against decarbonization in one country. You know, a lot of the the naysayers and bedwetters were saying for years, oh gosh, you know, there's no point in the U.S. economy decarbonizing because China's building a coal plant once every two weeks or, you know, switch out over a silly talking point. It was always a dumb argument because pollution is waste. And getting rid of pollution from your economy makes it more efficient. But this, I think this development is yet another um, spike in the end zone of reality when it comes to that argument, which is why I love it so much. Um, so, I, you know, I, I just see it as uh, really, really a positive uh, dynamic. Story three is Amy Feldman from Forbes reported how to build a climate-friendly skyscraper, start small, petri dish small. John, what do you think? I didn't even have to click this link to know that I'll probably be the downer and you'll be excited about it. But but <laughs> I, I did click the link and I think I'm, I'm more in the middle. So as you know, concrete is everywhere. It's a major contributor to carbon pollution, responsible for 8% of the world's CO2 pollution. The built environment real estate is like, you know, the 35 to 40% range uh, because of its main ingredient, cement. So the story notes that according to London-based think tank, Chatham House, uh, to bring the cement industry in line with the Paris Agreement on Climate Change, its annual emissions would need to drop by at least 16% by 2030, even as cement production is slated to increase. So here we have this startup, Prometheus Materials, inspired by coral and seashell formations. They're transforming algae into cement. And that's you know, that's normally where you lose me and get me back into the solid infrastructure stuff. But it is actually pretty interesting. So Prometheus is trying to secure, I think, 15 to $35 million in venture. Um, they're planning to build a 35,000 square foot factory. 
then they'll need to demonstrate that this is viable, that they can get customers as with any clean tech, climate tech company. And their strategic plan is to uh, collaborate with those large cement producers and use a licensing strategy to reach $75 million in revenue by 2027. Mike, what do you think? Until we started working for Rondo Energy, excuse me, I, I didn't realize how much carbon pollution is is produced making cement. Like it's just a, a massive amount. And this company is doing something so cool. You know, they they grow algae, they spark biomineralization, say that fast. And then out of that, they're producing this zero carbon bio cement that looks like what we're all used to. So you're right. I, I do... Of the two of us, I do tend to fall in love with um, these sort of uh, these more unusual technologies. But, you know, yes, they're challenged by raising funds for factory construction and convincing the industry to try it. But I just I think there's something really intriguing and uh, compelling about companies that step up and try something that no one else has thought of or at least had the courage to do. And I got to give them props for this. I think it's I think they're squarely in that category. John, uh, what's our fourth story? Yeah, number four is from Christopher M. Matthews and Colin Eaton at the Wall Street Journal. It's called Inside Exxon Strategy to Downplay Climate Change. What do you think? Oh, boy. Uh, so I'm going to try not to go off too here, but uh, talk about hitting close to home. So, you know, as before I was a clean tech flack, I was I worked the environmental movement. And so... I, I view ExxonMobil as a legalized criminal operation, and I've been belly bumping with these guys for years. But the, you know, the bottom line in the story is it's, it's another document dump that shows that ExxonMobil knew a long time ago that they were doing was going to trash the planet, and they chose to keep trashing the planet. And, you know, it does beg the question, what did all these executives back then, what did they think they were going to do? with the money they were going to make. There's put all their houses on stilts. I'm not really sure if I had my way, we'd strand that entire executive team on the lowest Island in the Maldives with a fishing rod and no boats to get off. But, you know, I just think when all is said and done, the clean economy will have succeeded in its disruptive mission here. When Darren Woods has to apply to you to be a summer intern. I don't know that that's going to happen. And I think you said everything that needed to be said there and, and have deeper experience with them than I do. The one thing that struck me as I'm reading this story, I was reminded of the Arizona Cardinals head coach Dennis Green's famous press conference quote, they are who we thought they were and we let them off the hook. That's yes. where I'll leave it. Yes, Let's 100%. All right. Number five is a Washington Post story by our guest today, Evan Halper. EV makers' use of Chinese suppliers raises concerns about forced labor. And I think we're um, we're getting to the point we ought to bring Evan on to talk about his story rather than us talking about, his, about that for him. So, uh, Evan, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Good to see you guys. Thanks for having me here. Big takeaway from your story. If um, If our listeners haven't read it yet, what's the big thing you want them to know? Well, the big thing I want them to know is that these auto companies are all making these big grand pledges about human rights and the ethics of their supply chains and saying, you know, they, they would never use forced labor, that they investigate their supply chains. Um, we took a look, we spent a few months looking at how these supply chains work and saw that you don't really need to look deep, too deep into the supply chain to find, uh, in, in what we looked at, um, evidence of these companies working with suppliers in Xinjiang, where, you know, under U.S. law, you're not even allowed to be uh, using any materials and anything imported into the U.S. because of the forced labor problem there. 
And this isn't exclusive, Evan, to EVs. I know that was the nature of the story, but solar is in a, a similar predicament with the sourcing of, of polysilicon and um, untangling these supply chains is is proving to be very difficult, though you were able to trace this back without a, a lot of difficulty. So I'm kind of I'm trying to square what I'm hearing from the industry of, you know, separating um all of these different components is is too hard for us right now, but we're doing our best and traceability is is very difficult, but you were able to do it. How how do I help exactly. me understand that? So my take on this is that the industry wants to, they want to have clean supply chains, obviously, but it's incredibly difficult with so much of battery production happening in China and China now trying to move so much of that production into Xinjiang. I mean, there's a big push where, where China's moving. A lot, a lot of these companies have state relationships. And so there's a lot of, of manufacturing going on there. The auto companies in the way that they trace their supply chains is they have, you know, there's 13,000 companies in a supply chain and they'll, they'll really audit their tier one suppliers, which is like, you know, maybe a few dozen, maybe a, a couple of hundred companies. And they'll tell those tier one suppliers like, you know, these are our policies. We expect you to follow the policies. We're going to audit you. We're going to look. But then the way that those tier one suppliers, which then work with, you know, tier one, tier two, tier three, tier four down the line, the way that they enforce those policies and the auto companies leave it to the tier one suppliers to enforce the auto company policies down the line they just send out questionnaires often and they say, you know, are you using child labor? Are you using forced labor? And, you know, to surprise you, the answer is often no. And so at the same time, this is in the backdrop of the, you know, Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act kicked in last year that says, again, anything coming from this province of China uh, cannot be imported into the U.S. And so they're in a very similar predicament that the solar industry was in, you know, still is in, but was, was very much in a year or two ago, uh, you know, where the, you know, customs and border patrol is stepping up enforcement is going to be looking at how much of this stuff is getting imported. And I think you're going to start to see product seizures because it's, you know, again, it's not that hard to find mm -hmm. the evidence. We found it. Um, some nonprofits we worked with, which were basically a few people on a laptop, you know, who, who could navigate the uh, financial records in China. They were able to find it very quickly. You know, Ron Wyden's committee is looking at this. Uh, there's a lot of attention on this all of a sudden. And you're right. This is not just an EV issue. I mean, this has happened with other industries. It's happened with the solar industry. You know, it's a broader auto industry issue. But, you know, right now the EV industry is at an inflection point, uh, you know, where they're making a lot of investments, they're getting their supply chain set up. And, you know, there's a lot of pressure on them to do this right. Uh, because, you know, whatever they do could be locked in for decades. Evan, my question is, for more mature industries that get a lot of their supply chain materials from China, does the same apply to the same degree, a greater degree, or a lesser degree? Well, the fashion industry is a good um, example. Um, you know, that they were getting so much cotton from Xinjiang, and they were saying, you know, these are, these are suppliers, and we can't really track where all it's coming from. And, you know, when, when the regulators stepped in and pressure sort of ratcheted up, they figured it out. And, you know, they have, they have a whole bunch of standards and, uh, you know, they're getting their cotton from elsewhere. It's more complicated with the EV industry, as you know. I mean, you know, China really, they, they made big investments early on, much bigger than the U.S. did. And they have control of a lot of these, uh, you know, critical materials or the processing, just as they did with solar panels. And so even with the Inflation Reduction Act, I mean, we're trying to ramp up a lot of production in the U.S. and in countries we have free trade agreements with, but there's so much that needs to be done 
uh, so quickly that it's it's hard to move all this production away from China, and it puts these auto companies in a challenging situation. So much more to talk about. John, we're about out of time. I want to give a shout out to our terrific producer, Brian Mendez, and to Alex Peterson and Claire Quirin for helping us identify this week's top stories. Yeah, and of course, thanks to Evan Halper for joining us on this episode of This Week in Clean Tech. Please subscribe, give us feedback, and share those story uh, suggestions. And you can also read each of those articles, including Evan's, that we discussed this week by clicking the links in the episode description. And Monday on Factor This, we have Standard Solar CEO Scott Wider talking about some of the big takeaways from the side conversations where the real business happens at RE+. You won't want to miss that one. Mike, see you next time. You too, my friend. I'll see you in two weeks. Evan, thank you for coming on. It's good to see you again. Take care. Thank you, guys. Appreciate it. Hey, it's John Ingle, and I'm excited to share that registration is now live for Grid Tech Connect Forum California. Join us in Newport Beach June 24th through the 26th for the Interconnection event. We're bringing together utilities, developers, regulators, and advocates to take on one of the biggest challenges facing the energy transition, both at the DG and utility scale levels. Click the link in the episode description and use promo code PODCAST to save 10% on admission. Join our partners from the Department of Energy, NREL, Southern California Edison, PG&E, Kaiso, Sunrun, NG, Convergent, AES, and so many more for this impactful event. We'll see you there.